0: This is an ABC podcast. What you can expect is that you'll pay better attention, you'll be a little more creative, you'll remember things better, you'll be have more flexibility in your thinking.
1: No, it's not a drug. It's free and anyone can do it. Yes, it's exercise. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, on this Working Life for RN Summer, we're digging into what science says about how to move your body and what to feed your brain in order to perform at your peak. With me is Dr Delia McCabe, she's a nutritional neuroscientist and luckily she shares my obsession with food. Delia has researched how what we eat affects our brains and her book is Feed Your Brain. So Delia, what's one big mistake many of us make when it comes to what we feed our
2: brains? I think, Lisa, the biggest mistake people make is that they don't think about the fact that what they're eating is impacting their brain. They're not aware of the fact that all of our thinking occurs across this huge neural network. And everything that happens there depends on, on the nutrients that, that we eat. Think about it. Our brain is only about 2% of our body weight, but it can use up to 50% um, of the carbohydrates we eat as a source of energy. And people aren't aware of how greedy it is. Greedy brain. So how do we know then if our
1: diet is suboptimal in terms of feeding our brain? What are the signs for us,
2: Look, a lot of this research is pointing to the fact that mood is definitely implicated when our diet is poor. And all of us have felt this, Lisa. You know, when you're really, really hungry, um, you get hangry. And, you know, we know what that feels like. It's just like, feed me, don't talk to me. And, um, you know we know that that that's definitely the first thing we get irritable, we get moody food, becomes our focus. And you know we can't think straight. our uh, our focus and our concentration and definitely yeah. our learning ability, you know which is where memory comes in, is impacted. So we've all felt the these effects directly, but we don't always attribute them to the nutrients that we that we're consuming or not consuming, or otherwise you know having low blood glucose. We don't always think that it's directly related, but generally it is. So, we're
1: really focused on how do we perform our best in a pandemic. So, can you tell us a story about one of your clients who's a lawyer and her experience of changing her diet?
2: Well, it was an interesting um, experience, Lisa, because she came to me because she had a a skin problem you know the problem got solved pretty quickly but a couple of weeks later she said to me it's really weird Delia she said because you know my thinking is so much clearer now Um, my focus my concentration my memory I don't have foggy thinking anymore you know how's that happened and then I explained it to her and it was really pretty simple because 60 percent of the dry weight of the brain is made up of fat and of that 60 percent between 20 and 25% needs to be made up of a very specific kind of fat that we cannot make. We actually have to get it from our diet. And therefore, these fats are called essential fatty acids. And when people have specific skin ailments, it's because they're lacking in these essential fats. So by fixing her skin, um, by including the correct fats, she actually improved her brain function as well. Did they improve at the same time, Delia? No, her skin actually improved very quickly. In In about 10 days, she noticed a significant improvement. And then a couple of weeks later, she noticed her, her brain function. But because of the way the brain works, it may be that the, the symptoms of improvement were just a little bit slower to get started. I'm, I'm
1: interested in the reference to good fats because I think it, with the movement of low-fat diets, maybe fat's got a bad name. So what are essential fatty acids then and how we
2: get them through our food? Look, the fat and oil story is a hugely complex story and it's very easy to fool people when the story is as complex as as, this, as the story is. The first biggest problem, I think, is that researchers called fats fats. They should have called them lipids, which is their biochemical term. Generally speaking, people are getting it in the wrong ratio. They're getting um, omega-6 oils that have been damaged through harsh processing and not getting enough of the omega-3s. So the aim of the exercise is to improve the consumption of omega-3s by consuming the seeds that contain them and lots of leafy greens that contain them and um, animals that have been grass-fed because then they'll also contain the omega-3s. And what are the seeds that you're talking about? Flax seeds are very high in omega-3, as are chia seeds, but they need to be crushed to be able to get out the omega-3 content. So if people want to incorporate that into their diet, they need to take flax seeds and chia seeds and crush a few of them every morning, a tablespoon or two every morning, to be able to get some more of those omega-3s in their diet. Beautiful.
1: It's a pity. I was just a bit sad that everything always leads to leafy greens.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look, leafy greens can be delicious if you know how to cook them and you know how to make salad dressings that make them yummy.
1: Let's dig into the role of neurotransmitters in
2: the brain. Can you tell us a little bit about their role? Neurotransmitters are tiny little messengers, tiny little compounds that allow our neurons to talk to each other. And they allow them to speak to each other, to send messages, and they also allow them to string together, wire together to create habits And when they're working well, we have a well-functioning brain. What are some of the well-known ones? Serotonin and dopamine are two of the most well-known neurotransmitters. And serotonin is related to um, us feeling calm and relaxed and at peace. It's also related to us um, feeling hungry and, you know, satisfying our our appetite. And it's, it's related to a number of different functions in the brain. Mm. And you know, dopamine is related to movement and activity and motivation and action. All of the neurotransmitters, including serotonin and dopamine, depend on amino acids from protein to be formed, as well as a lot of other compounds, things like magnesium, things like zinc, things like iron, vitamin C, and all the B vitamins, because they are all part of the pathway that leads to the synthesis or the creation of these neurotransmitters. So... It's when people begin to understand that their thinking process depends on having enough of the right nutrients available, it shifts their thinking and they start becoming more aware of the fact that thinking doesn't just occur at random, you know, and just, you know, without any context. It occurs based on the nutrients that we consume every day. Okay,
1: Delia. Now, I can't
2: talk about food and performance
1: without asking the question most of us are probably dreading. What about caffeine?
2: Yay or nay? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look, I love this question. And when I give in-person presentations, I always ask the audience, do you want to know about coffee? And Lisa, 50% put their hands up and say yes, and the other 50% are shaking their head. Uh, And then I just say, look, knowledge is power. The thing about caffeine is that there's been a lot of research to show that there are benefits to drinking coffee. And, and you know, that, that research is robust. However, the challenge with caffeine is that when we consume caffeine, it doesn't, doesn't just stay caffeine. It then turns into adrenaline and dopamine in our body. And when that happens, once again, nutrients are required to create adrenaline and and dopamine. So actually when you think about it and you look at the, the chemical, process that underpins the way caffeine works in the body and the brain it's actually a stress hit so when people are very stressed and they consume a lot of caffeine it actually increases their stress level simply because of the mechanisms that underpin how it works so i always say to people you know is caffeine serving you or are you serving it And that is just basically the question people need to ask themselves. And if they find that they can't function without caffeine and their thinking is too foggy and they can't focus and concentrate, it's actually a sign that their brain is exhausted and they need to be focusing on supplying nutrients in some other way. Okay, I'm going to negotiate with you. How about one cup a day? Oh, look, one cup a day is perfect and it suits most people. It's when people start relying on it and they can't get through the day and they need to be having coffee at three and four and five o'clock in the afternoon that you have a real problem because that then directly interferes with sleep. And even if you're sleeping all night, the sleep isn't as restorative because of the adrenaline that caffeine um, stimulates. What about water? Oh, look, water, it's extremely important. And people forget about this as well, because 78% of the brain is made up of water. And um, when you dehydrate it, there's a lot of research to show it's linked to headaches, it's linked to an inability to think clearly. So water is extremely important. Now I'm asking you all
1: the tricky questions. So where do you stand on supplements? Do we need them
2: or do we do they just make expensive urine? There isn't enough robust research to show that supplements work for large groups of people for a variety of different reasons. One of them is that it's really expensive to put research together about dietary supplements and their relationship to health, because we have got gender, we've got age, we've got, you know, what people are eating generally to take into account. So, all the research that's been done on brain function and diet points to the fact that our diet is the biggest contributor to, to good mental health. And so I suggest to people that if they want to supplement, you know, they can, but they can't supplement a poor diet. They need to supplement a really good diet. And that diet needs to be full of all the right kinds of nutrients that the brain needs because relying on supplements, there really isn't any robust evidence um, to support that, that practice.
1: Are there certain nutrients that we can get through supplements that we can't really get anywhere else?
2: Well, one of the nutrients that people supplement a lot is essential fatty acids because it's really hard in our present modern-day diet to get enough of these essential fats. So, you know, supplementing with the right seeds and crushing those seeds and taking a good supplement if it is, you know, produced well is, is an option. Um, and sometimes people, when they're very, very stressed, they also want to consume magnesium. And there is some evidence to support magnesium being useful for, for anxiety in some groups of people. One of the sure signs that you are deficient in magnesium is if a door slams and you jump out of your skin. That's one of the simple signs to know that <laughs> that you need some more magnesium. And because we're really stressed at the moment, there are situations where people may need more magnesium. However, I once again say that people should rely on diet first So there are definitely some nutrients. You know, iron is another one. Some people are deficient in iron and it's very important to take iron if you are deficient because iron is very important for the brain. It's involved with myelination, which is the the process of making neurons receptive to information and making them communicate efficiently. Um, People can also be deficient in zinc, um, which also impacts the brain negatively. So there definitely are instances where Uh, dietary supplements can be useful but I normally suggest to people to have blood tests before they take supplements. So it's back to the crushing the seeds. Yeah it's back to crushing the seeds and doing it every day and you know making sure that you're not also consuming damaged fats because if you're consuming damaged fats those fats are being put into your cell membrane simply because your body doesn't have an option it's looking for fats and essential fats specifically. Um, If you think about it, and this is interesting, if if we had to lay all our cell membranes out flat, they would cover 10 football fields. Now, that's a huge amount of space, and most people are surprised when they find that out. So, making sure that our 60 trillion plus cell membranes have the right fats in them is extremely important. Because as healthy as your smallest cell is, that's that's as healthy as you're going to be overall. Can we
1: cover off damaging fats then and fat sensitivity? Because um, I think a lot of us are used to cooking perhaps with olive oil. What is your thought
2: on that? Well, once again, um, one just has to look at the molecular structure of the fats and the oils. And if you look at monounsaturated fats, of which olive oil is one, mono means one. That means it's got one double bond, double carbon bond, which means that's a little spot for oxygen um, to become damaged in, if I can put it that way. Mm. So frying with olive oil is not a clever idea. And just because some of the top chefs in the world throw olive oil in the pans as they're showing you how wonderful you know the food can be, <laughs> doesn't mean that it's a good plan. And traditionally olive oil was never used for frying. You know the farmer would have a certain amount from his crop. And um, the family would use that over the season. And when they ran out, they ran out. We didn't have vast quantities of olive oil like we do today. So when people talk to me about frying with olive oil, I always just say to them, you know, look at, look at the structure, the the molecular structure of the fat, and it will tell you that it will become damaged when it is heated. Omega-6 more so, it has more double bonds. And Omega-3 even more, it has more double bonds. So that as we go up the scale of the sophistication of the fats and oils, they become more susceptible to light heat and oxygen damage. But yeah, olive oil, I wouldn't fry with that either, Lisa. What would you fry with? I actually don't fry at all. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> because What should I fry with? <laughs> okay, if you need to fry, the best... Um, oil to fry with is probably coconut oil or butter or lard. However, those fats still become damaged, even though they're saturated fats and they don't have any double bonds. And that's simply because fats do become damaged. It's just the way it works. It's just That's just lipid biochemistry. So if you can get out of the habit of frying, that would be a really good plan for your overall health and brain health. So Delia, if our
1: this working life community is to try a couple of other things to better feed their brains,
2: what do you recommend? Well, the one thing to try and do is to make sure that every single meal contains really good clean protein Colorful carbohydrates and good fat. And you have those three things combined in every meal. You find blood glucose becomes stable. You've got a much greater chance of supplying your body and brain with the right nutrients when you have that kind of a meal set up. And you actually end up feeling satisfied for longer. Making sure we've got all the right nutrients also helps us manage stress more efficiently. We We become more stress resilient. So I think that's a good thing for people to take on board. And if they're doing that, they're naturally moving away from processed food. And that is a good thing for all of us because processed food doesn't just contain too much sugar, too many additives and damaged fats. It also gets digested much too quickly. So we end up being hungry again too soon. Thanks so much, Delia. An absolute pleasure, Lisa. It was lovely chatting.
1: You're listening to This Working Life. I'm Lisa Leong, and today we're revisiting a favourite show from our series, Performing in a Pandemic. If you missed it, all the episodes are available on our podcast, including how to avoid burnout, the importance of deliberate rest and how to stop procrastinating at work. So we've covered what to feed your brain for optimal performance at work. Now, how best to move our bodies.
0: I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. it. Yeah, I like to move it, move it, move it. it.
1: John J. Ratey is a psychiatrist and clinical assistant professor at Harvard Medical School who has studied the effect of exercise on the brain for more than 40 years. G'day, John.
0: Hello, good to be with you.
1: Now, do you think we should prepare our brains for this chat? Can you take me through a short exercise, John?
0: Well, okay, I will, if you will. uh, Stand up, put your hands out in front of you. Yep. Pull them back real tight. And then bend down and touch the floor. Okay, let's do that again. Pull them back real tight. Yep. Bend down and touch the floor. And you can do that for as long as you can do it, and you're you're working many of the major muscles in your body. Oh,
1: I'm, feel, I'm feeling it, John.
0: <laughs> you're feeling it? Okay.
1: So, John, what's happening in the chemistry in our brains when we exercise, doing something like that?
0: Right. What happens when we move? Back up a little bit. Our brains evolve to help us be the best movers. So our big brains evolved to help us plan and recover and imagine and remember what we're doing so we could be what I call the evolutionary victors. With that, most of our brain that we use to move with is also our thinking brain. So when you move just as you did, what happened is you excited all these nerve cells in your brain. We use more of our nerve cells in moving than in any other human activity. And when you move, you release a lot of neurotransmitters, hormones are released, all this is released to help us use our brain better. So what happens immediately is we release two major neurotransmitters dopamine and norepinephrine, both of which are involved in the attention system. It's what we target with our psychiatric medicine, especially for people with attention deficit problems. We use Ritalin or uh, amphetamine, and they do the same thing. They boost the dopamine and norepinephrine, and this causes our attention system to sing, to turn on to really work the best that it can work. So immediately, your attention system is better. You're more alert, you're more focused. And as well, if you continue to exercise for say five to 10 minutes like that, you're gonna get all kinds of other changes. You're gonna get an increase in serotonin, which is what we boost with our antidepressants. So it's gonna have actually a calming effect. You're gonna boost a a very important element called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is, I called it miracle grow or people have have called it fertilizer for the brain so that it helps the brain grow. And the way we learn anything is for our brain cells to grow.
1: And so John, when I did the very short exercise, I felt a, a sort of a rush and then that helped me with that um, idea of the focused attention that you spoke about, which I can definitely see being very helpful at work. How long might that effect last
0: for? Well, it depends on how long you do it, but it, even with the 10 minute exercise period, you can keep the, your attention system working for three to four hours better. And the best exercise is with somebody else outside and something that you enjoy that's fun because then you'll come back to it. And this boosts the brain maximally. So something like walking together or running together or biking together, this changes the chemistry of your brain pretty radically and uh, prepares you for whatever work you're doing.
1: And it's not just attention. What have studies told us about creativity levels after exercise?
0: There's a bunch of studies that have been done, but a great one out of Stanford University, where they looked at about 150 students and measured their creativity. So they had three different phases. First, when they just came in and did the test, then the next week they came in and walked for 15 minutes and did the test while they were walking. Then the following week they came in and did 15 minutes of walking and did the test after they were done. The experimenters thought that the biggest improvement was going to be after they had exercised. Well, in Mm. fact, compared to the baseline, they were more creative after the exercise. But to their surprise, while they were moving, while they were walking, that was the best scores that the kids got. So. The best and most creative period is when we're moving a bit, not exhaustively, but a bit, just to get your brain geared up.
1: John, what sort of intensity should we then be aiming at for that optimal brain boost?
0: Well, there's a lot to be said for just moderate exercise, but uh, intense exercise for short periods of time, which we call high-intensity interval training, You know, this can be very, very powerful. Instead of walking for 30 minutes, if you do 10 minutes and you intersperse it with some jogging or running for a period of time during that, you'll get the same boosting effect on the brain.
1: And in terms of cognition, what percentage increase in cognitive performance can we expect after exercise then, John?
0: Well, what you can expect is that you'll pay better attention you'll be a little more creative, you'll remember things better, you'll be have more flexibility in your thinking, which is a very big point of, of our IQ, then being flexible, is shifting sets from this, this action to another better action, uh, not be stuck in the same old thinking pattern. And so exercise sort of oils the brain and provides us with a lot of uh, fertilizer to help our brain cells grow, which as we know, is the only way we learn anything. We, we grow in the memory, and exercise prepares the brain better than anything else for us to learn and remember. What
1: about brain training, like Sudoku or uh, chess? How does that compare to aerobic exercise when it comes to increasing brain function then?
0: No doubt. It helps and it does similar kinds of things, but not nearly so good as physical exercise. And that's a big surprise to people. But certainly when you combine exercise with intellectual challenge, like something like playing tennis or soccer or taekwondo, where you're learning and you have to stress and strain uh, what you're doing so you do it correctly, uh, and you're thinking about it. Something even like dance. Dance is one of the best exercises that you can do because it gets you moving, so you get all the benefits of moving, but at the same time, you have to think about it. I was doing Zumba this afternoon, and I'm not very good at it, right? But uh, it was really hard. But I was moving with it. My wife is really good at it. But I plug along and uh, eventually I'll get it down.
1: And how old are you, John? Can you say?
0: Sure. I I am now 72.
1: 72, doing Zumba, loving it. Yep. Thank you so much, John. Internationally recognized expert in neuropsychiatry, Professor John Ratey from Harvard Medical School. Tune in next week. You're going to want to hear this one. The benefits of the four-day week, both for employees and the businesses they work for, will provide all of the arguments you need to convince your boss. Well, maybe. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle, who's spending her summer holidays getting physically fit. Go, Maria. Go, Maria.
0: Do you really think this is never going to end? Because it is.
1: I'm Lisa Leong. Until next week, keep working.
0: Not bad, eh? I like it. You've been
2: listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live
0: radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.